There is really no way to address uh, what we've been through in the last week, except just to say we're broken. I think that's true. We, we absolutely need people in our lives to lead us, no matter who we are. We all look to someone. They speak to us, they guide us, they encourage us, they rebuke us, and we grow in part because of what those people do for us. But re- the reality is that the men who lead us are not the men who can save us. And there's only one man that, that can do that. And so it's for that reason every week that we come around this table and we reestablish our dependence on that one man, Jesus. And I want you to know today that what happened in the last few days is what this table is all about. That's why it's there. This week we've had heartache, we've had grief, and the minute that that happened, the minute that those things showed up, there also appeared almost mysteriously support and encouragement and listening ears and helpful hugs. I want you to think back through the conversations that you've had and the encounters you've had this last week. In the suffering and in the pain and the loss, was there not also love and life? that came out on the other side, or at least the hope of it, right? And as we look to the table today, is that not what we see here? On this table are emblems that Christ left for us. There is grain, right? Except it's grain that has been pounded, turned, and batted about, and ground into dust because it has to be that way so that there's bread that nourishes our body and our soul. And on this table, there are grapes here. They are bruised and they're pierced and they're torn open and they're crushed so that there might be wine to replenish and strengthen and renew. And it's no wonder that Christ left these emblems in these little pieces of food, even in these things. There's the picture of Christ himself. He was beaten. He was ground to dust. He was bruised. He was crushed. He was torn open. He was pierced. He suffered stripes on his back and wounds in his hands and feet and thorns in his brow. That's pain. That's anguish. And yet, out of that torture, out of that disgrace, comes healing and love and life and salvation. Here's the truth. I know about it about me and I know it about you. We want our life to be scripted. Scripted. We want our life written out according to our plans, according to our wills, according to our dreams. But life isn't like that. It never goes that way. And these past few days are a reminder to us of that reality. Even Jesus would have preferred the script to be written a little differently in a certain way. What did he pray? Let this cup pass from me. But it was not meant to be. God chose to have a different narrative. He wrote into the script something that was unscriptable to anyone. No one writes this. No one imagines the Son of God being shamed and humiliated by being nailed to wooden posts. That just doesn't happen. And yet that's the way God wrote the script. He orchestrated it to happen. It was unscriptable. But what we learn out of that three days later is that God uses what is unscriptable 
to bring about the impossible. And so this last week, we've been inundated with support and love and concern, and I know you have as well from those around you. You've had conversations this week, and I challenge you to think back. I'll bet you that you have used the I love you phrase more this week, this past week, than you have in the past months or years. And what I want you to see as you come to the table this morning is that that is what the gospel is. That's why we're here every Sunday. We want the glory of God. We want the advancement of his kingdom. We want to proclaim the name of Jesus. But we also, if truth be told, we want to accomplish those things in our, in our way, by our script that we write ourselves. God has a different way. He always has. His glory always comes by way of shame. He doesn't always prevent the rust and the dust, but he does use them to make something spectacular. That's what he did with the cross. Out of the defeat and the silence of that day came everlasting life. And so as we gather around the table, here's our hope that if he can do that, with the cross, if he can bring ultimate victory out of that kind of unimaginable loss, then surely, surely he can handle this. The table is a reminder of that. The grain dies and there is bread. The grapes die and there is wine. The Son of God dies and there is life. And we died this week. But there is fruit coming. That's the gospel. Jesus said it this way. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I want the guys who are serving to go ahead and come forward. And as they do, I'm going to pray. And I want you to take this time to remind yourself that God is in control. He's using the unscriptable parts of life to bring about the fruit that only he can bring about. Would you pray with me? Father, Lord of all, may your glory again be brought about through our failures, through our inadequacy. Just as a seed has to die for there to be something productive and life-giving, may we die to you today. And we do that in hopes that you will bring about out of death life once again. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today was planned long ago. Every once in a while, uh, God gives us reminders that he is orchestrating things, and today is one of those days. And no one could have known about the things that would lead us to today, but here's where we are. And so we have the right message at the right time for the right people. And Greg Motley has been in town for a couple years and a part of what we have going on here for a while now. And we thank him for being uh, a strong part of what we're doing around here. And we asked him to come and share his story. It is an unscriptable story that God wrote in his life. And so would you uh, welcome Greg Motley.
probably hard to believe that uh, God would send a banker to give comfort to anybody, really. <laughs> if you've heard uh, my story before, I, um, I just ask that you pray for me and pray for those around you. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm hurting with you. I've only been here two years, but this, this church has been special to me. It, it helped me transition from uh, one community to another, and this was just been indispensable in that whole process, and I've just grown to love so many people here. And it's been such a source of uh, strength and comfort to me. Um, and my, my story is pretty heavy, but if you just hang in there, it, there's really a light at the end of this tunnel. So, uh, Karen, would you put up First uh, John 4, 7, and 8? Uh, this was written by John the Beloved. He was called that because he was Jesus' favorite disciple. That always used to make me mad that Jesus had a favorite because I was kind of hoping for the job. But, um, but I think, you know, if you remember at the cross, Jesus turned to John and said, John, behold your mother, and mother, behold your son. That's a high honor that Jesus gave John. And I think it's because John pressed into Jesus. Uh, when they reclined to eat, John put his his back on Jesus's chest and leaned into him and I think that's what we all need to do today and I didn't I, I didn't know much about the art of that and and and, and hopefully through this story you'll see how I did learn that first uh, John 4 7 and 8 says beloved let us love one another for love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God he that loves not knows not God for God is love you know, I think most of you, grew, like me, grew up with the Protestant work ethic that you worked hard all the time. And, and I did at a young age. My dad was a hard worker, and I was a, a hard worker at a young age. And I think uh, part of the danger of that is that we view love as only a verb. Yes, it is a verb. We need to do things in order to express our love. But first, it is a noun. And that's what the essence of this verse says. God is love, not God does love. And I, I needed, you know, intellectually I could grasp that message. Oh, yeah, I know that I need to spend time with Jesus before I can truly love. But just the noise of society and my upbringing uh, gave me kind of a performance-oriented relationship with the Father. I thought I needed to do things for Him. And when you believe that, subtly you believe that He needs to do things for you. And so my love for God was based upon what I had perceived that He had done for me. And, that, and that's not the way it works. And um, God used um, this, this story to really illustrate that to me. Um, in the spring of 1997, um, life was so good for me. I, I was 40 years old and uh, had just a, a great family. Karen, would you put my uh, family, family picture up there? This was taken in uh, late 1996, the fall of 96 in my backyard. Um, it, it was just, I was president of a bank. I was just living the dream, and I felt like I had God's complete blessings on me. And uh, as such, I was joyful, and I was uh, a regular uh, attender at church. I prayed every morning from uh, 5.30 a.m. to 6.30 a.m. and read the Word uh, continuously. Um, but in uh, early 1997, I started feeling kind of an holy unrest. I just knew something was wrong, and I just didn't have an identity of what it is. 
And I remember um, in the, the spring of 97, spending a particularly poignant time with the prayer, with, with the Lord in prayer. And uh, I was just working up to a desperation in prayer. And I prayed. I remember this prayer so well because it just came back to me uh, uh, later in, in, in this year. Lord, there's something between me and you. And I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. And I will do anything, anything to see that barrier broken down. I want you. I want you. I want you. And as I prayed, I felt this release in prayer, just a relaxation, and then a worship time came over me. And I felt like God had heard my prayers and was answering my prayers. I, I didn't really know how uh, how it was going to work out. Um, the blessings of life continued for me. Um, shortly after this picture, we adopted uh, child number six. Um, we did, unfortunately, we didn't get have a family picture of um, of all uh, all of all six of us before uh, a tragedy occurred in my life. Um, th- this and God blessed me and showed me the miracle of His love uh, through this little boy called, named Brian. When we we uh, after that after the uh, the spring uh, we went on a family vacation. It was just one of those family vacations that just everything goes wonderfully. And we went with another family that had kids our age, and it, you know we went on a two-week camping trip to the East Coast, saw Washington D.C., Gettysburg, all kinds of wonderful things. And we got back; it was uh, Brian was getting ready to start preschool. Now Brian uh, came to us uh, through the foster system. He was 10 months old when we got him. He was strong as a bull, and he could already walk by the time we got him at 10 months, and he had. A, a bull-like attitude just to go along with his physical strength. Um, his mother was a drug addict that just couldn't kick the habit. His father was at the top of the 10 most wanted list in, Can- in the FBI 10 most wanted list in Kansas City. Um, and he, they finally caught him, and he was incarcerated. Um, he, uh, his parental, the parental rights of his mom and dad were terminated, and. Um, we uh, sought to adopt Brian when, once we found out that those legal rights were terminated. And when the dad found out that a white family was adopting their son, he protested and he filed a lawsuit to stop the state from allowing us t- to adopt him. Now, there had never been a successful appeal of termination of parental rights in the history of the state of Kansas. So the state permitted us to go ahead with the adoption and we adopted Brian. We went to court. The judge signed the order. Um, it's just that the order couldn't be filed yet until that minor technicality had worked its way through. The man was in prison. He had no plan to, to be able to take care of his child. And so we just didn't worry about it. It was just on the back burner, and, and we went forward with life. And, um, and Brian became part of our family. Um, my wife, Betty... Um, was uh, just a, a wonderful lady. We had a wonderful marriage, um, and she loved Brian to death. And I would get up in the morning and do my devotions at 5.30, and at 6.30, uh, very often, I would hear bacon and eggs sizzling on the stove in the kitchen, and I'd smell this aroma, and I'd come into the kitchen, and there would be my wife serving Brian 
bacon and eggs and all kinds of fixings. And I'd go over to the stove and there was nothing left. <laughs> and my wife would point to the cereal cabinet and say, you know, there, have at it. So the point is that she, she and Brian just had this special affinity and this special love for one another that was just amazing. Um, Brian just became knit into the fabric of our home. Um, Brian had this uh, tendency to escape. Um, we lived in a very nice neighborhood with lots of people that we knew and loved and cared about. And Brian was strong enough to open the double-pane sliding glass door in, our, in the back of our house. My five-year-old son wasn't strong enough, but Brian at age two or three was strong enough to open that door. So sometimes we would lose track of Brian and he would not be found in the house anywhere and we'd have to go on a search. And very often Brian would just go from door to door and look for an open door of one of the neighbors that he knew and he'd just open the door and go in. And uh, pretty soon that neighbor would call and say, hey, uh, Brian's over here. I just made him, you know, some bacon and eggs or a hamburger or something, and Brian's just sitting here eating with us, and we'll, we'll bring him home when he's done eating. And so we, we, we would apologize. It's kind of embarrassing when you lose track of a little African-American boy in an all-white neighborhood, you know. So One day, uh, uh, you know, and speaking of that, there's always the neighbor that doesn't like you. And um, one day, Brian wandered out of our house, and he ended up on the doorstep of that neighbor. And uh, he opened the door, and the door was unlocked, and he went in, and those people were angry, you know. And we had already realized he was gone, and so my kids and I were, and my wife were out on a search, where is he, and nobody had called, and I'm wondering where he is. And um, with a lot of the neighborhood out there and all my kids out there, this woman comes roaring out the door with Brian, holding Brian like this, and and my wife sees her coming and meets her at the yard, and she hands Brian to her like that and just reads her to the riot act. It went on and on and on, and it was, it was really a tough situation. We were all kind of embarrassed. And um, so we apologized and took Brian in. We sat him down, and we were eating dinner. And we just like to talk through uh, those kinds of things over dinner and, you know, what, what, what happened out there, Dad? And my son, Ben, who was about... S- five or six years old, um, said, uh, said to me, Dad, do you think it's because Brian's black that they don't like him? And Brian is sitting there at the table eating just happy-go-lucky, and he turns and looks at Ben and says, who's black? And he's look, <laughs> looking around the table, and he, can't, and he just kept repeating, who's black? And you know, love knows no color. Brian was a part of us. And uh, we loved him. Brian uh, loved Davy Crockett. He loved Walker, Texas Ranger. And uh, our kids loved to indulge in those things with him. Um, Shortly after this preschool picture of Brian was taken, our lives began to spin out of control. I was to experience four major tragedies over the next few months and years that were devastating to me. I mentioned my wife of 20 years, uh, Betty. She was my college sweetheart. She was a dynamic, godly woman, uh, and we were a good team. Uh, In September of 97, uh, shortly after the adoption of Jesse, our youngest son was final, she began just to experience fatigue and nausea. Uh, We went to church one Sunday morning, and uh, 
seeking prayer and, and obeying the James 5 scripture to have the elders pray. And so we went forward and, uh, for prayer for her, and one of the elders' wives laid her hands on my wife. And almost instantly, she pulled her hand away and said, something's seriously wrong. You need to go to the doctor right away. And so, so we did. Uh, we, we got an appointment as soon as we could, uh, and the diagnosis was brutal. Uh, it was cancer. It was inoperable and untreatable. Um, my wife was 40 years old, two-sport athlete, ate right, um, and probably her health interfered with early diagnosis of this disease. And uh, 83 days later, after 20 years of marriage, she was dead. Um, naturally, we were shocked and devastated, <clears throat> not only by her death, but the process. A lot of you know that watching somebody die of cancer is, a, is just a horrible, horrible thing. And because um, there was no hope and no treatment, she was at home all 83 days, and so we just watched her, watched her go down. Um, but the devastation was just beginning. Um, unbeknownst to me, when the state of Kansas found out that my wife was ill, they decided that if my wife died, that I was a single dad with six kids and that Brian needed a new home. So when she died, uh, there was a phone call, knock on the door, a van came to take Brian away. And I was devastated again. And I really hadn't gained my equilibrium from the first hit when this one came along. And I did you know, what every man would do. I fought for Brian. I went to see an attorney, uh, spent some money. The attorney said, there's no hope of you getting Brian back. There's no hope. The cards are all stacked in the favor of the state. You have no rights here. They're going to unwind this adoption, and uh, they, they placed him back in foster care. And I was just totally devastated again. And, you know, part of um, the danger of a performance-oriented approach to God is that um, when things are going well for you, you like it when other people see you doing well, and you like the accolades of that. And my kids thought I walked on water. And unfortunately, I didn't do enough to dispel that. And my kids couldn't understand why I had let this happen to, to our family. Our family was just falling apart. And I, I couldn't explain it adequately. They thought I could fix any, everything. And I, I couldn't, this one. Um, I was just barely able to function and to think. Um, I was, it, it felt like an out-of-body experience most days. I just felt disconnected to, to who I was. Um, I, I just feel lost, and I forget where I was. I just felt lost. Um, and my health began to fail. I'd never had surgery in my life. I had two in the next six months that was probably stress-related. Um, I lost my job. I, I was president of a bank, and you can't be... 50% of who you are and, and make that work. I just lost my job. Um, it's just like the floor was tilting and I was falling and I just, there was no, nothing to hang on to, nothing to stop what, what was happening to me. Um, about this time, in a very miraculous way, uh, the Lord uh, introduced me to my second wife, Kim. 
And she had just lost her husband six months before my wife died in a boating jet ski accident. And we began to lean on each other. And for the first time in a while, I started having hope for the future. There can be life after these kinds of tragedies. And I started, I kept my prayer time going. Sometimes I would just sit there and stare. But I, there's no place else to go, people. There's no place back. Where do you go? It was like I was trapped against the Red Sea and the Egyptian army was coming and the pillar of fire was keeping the army back. There was no place to go back. Who else could I go to but the living God? And so, uh, reluctantly, in the weakness of my flesh, I just pressed into him in the mornings and uh, hoped I would start feeling different or better. Devastation number three happened that same year. Months had passed. Brian was in the foster system. um, And um, we had heard that he was going to be adopted by a Douglas County family. We were a Johnson County family. They were Douglas County. So he's going to go under a different jurisdiction, the SRS. I didn't know those people over there. And so before the adoption took place, they allowed us to visit Brian one last time. and so we took, gathered all his memorabilia, his Davy Crockett hat and the movies he liked and his bike and all the stuff that he loved. And we wrote him letters and notes. We put pictures in a book. And we went to visit him in the, the, the foster home that he was in. And we were there for a while. I, we stayed too long. And um, I finally went to the door. And when I went to the door... Brian grabbed a hold of my knees. He said, Daddy, take me home. It's the worst moment of my life. How do you explain the whole world to a four-year-old boy? I had no words. I mumbled something about your mom is dead. The government says you had to stay here. But... Uh, again, it was just, it was just inadequate. Um, a few months later, um, we, you know, of course, we hadn't had any contact with Brian. I was, um, you know, trying to climb back from these, all these hits. Going to work again, found a job with lesser responsibility to give me time to put this new family together. Kim and I got married, and I got home from work one night, and the, the police called and said, uh, we've launched an investigation into all the foster families that have at one time taken care of Brian, and we need you to come to the police station. Well, what's happened? Sir, you just need to come to the police station. So I went down there, and they started reading nine instances of horrible abuse that Brian had endured. Sexual, physical, confinement in dog cages. And as they read those nine things that happened to my son, I broke. I lost all composure in the police station. And of course they were, I was part of the investigation along with all the other foster families. And 
they asked me to bring my kids down to the police station the next day. And I thought, I'm not going to go home with my kids. I was very concerned. I hired a lawyer. He attended uh, the questioning of my kids. And um, thankfully, the investigator walked by me and tapped me on the shoulder and said, you got some good kids there. And my attorney said the kids just acted like kids who were, were Christian kids who were innocent and, and well cared for. Um, a few minutes later, I get a card in the mail saying I'm not the subject of the investigation anymore. But you know what? No one was ever arrested for the abuse of my son. And that hurt. That hurt me. <clears throat> I became angry with God and distant. I was pa passive-aggressive. How foolish is that? If I just ignore you, I can hurt you, God, right? Foolishness. I went through the disciplines of Christianity, but there was something wrong. I couldn't watch a World Vision commercial on TV. Every time I saw the abuse or starvation of an African child, I'd have to leave the room. There was something broken in me that needed to be healed. Um, but slowly, I started putting one foot in front of the other and started to climb back into the relationship with the only one who could do anything for me. Two years passed, and the last devastation reared its ugly head. Kim and I were struggling to put a marriage together with seven kids, and um, it, we had tough times. Um, we had no time together for ourselves, and we were trying to put a new marriage together. That's not a very good formula. Um, but I'd gotten home from work again one evening, and a lady from the SRS called who I knew very well from Johnson County. And she lived close by, and we were pretty close. And she said, uh, Greg, i got to tell you something uh, that you're going to read in the papers tomorrow, and I, I just want to talk to you about it before you do. Um, can, you, can you go to a place that I can tell you a story? And so I went to my prayer place, and I sat down and and put my Bible on my lap. And she said that that Lawrence couple had not adopted Brian, that they'd put him back into the foster system, and he bounced around. He was finally uh, adopted by a pastor and his wife. And they, Brian was the fourth child that they had adopted through the SRS. And um, they had a hard time handling Brian. Well, Brian was going through tremendous grief. He, was he had lost his family. He had lost the mother he loved. He was bouncing from place to place. And, and my heart just wanted to scream out, of course he's hard to handle. Of course he's hurt. Don't you know what you've done? But I, but I held my tongue. And she told me the story of this couple had a hard time keeping Brian in bed at night. And so they taped him to the bed. And then Brian would scream out, and so they taped his mouth. And Brian was so strong and adept at getting out of those, those bindings that, that one night they went to the hardware store and bought several rolls of tape. And they laid him on the bed and they mummified him. Stuck a sock in his mouth and taped his mouth and just left his nose to breathe. And Brian sucked that sock down his throat. Vomited and drowned in his own vomit. You know, 
You can imagine the rage that welled up inside me. You people think you know what's best. Still in my pride. I told you I could do better for him. I told you that. You know, it, it was the, you know, this tragedy put, put our marriage at risk. The press uh, called us. They, they came to our front yard. They parked in our front yard with all kinds of television trucks. It was in the paper every day, every day. People calling. And my wife, bless her heart, didn't know Brian. And we didn't have the kind of intimacy it took at that time to, to survive something like this. It just about destroyed my marriage. And it just about destroyed me. Um, my kids had no confidence in me now whatsoever. Um, but you know, it was my support systems that got me through. It was my church. It was my private Christian school community. It was the homeschool community. It was my neighbors. It was my community that kept me going and kept me praying and kept me putting one foot in front of the other. We have community here, people. It's precious. Stick with it. Stick with it. I slowly began to climb back into relationship with the Father. And Palm Sunday rolled around. About two years after Brian died, um, I had really started walking closely with the Father again. And I went to our church on Palm Sunday, and it was, it was the week of the Lord's Passion, and I just wanted to experience something of Him during this week. And so I sat close to the front, and in my haughtiness, I prayed, Lord, show me something about you in this week of your passion that I did not know. Draw me close to you by showing me something new about you. Almost immediately, the Holy Spirit took my heart and mind to that moment at the door of the foster home where Brian wrapped his knees, wrapped his arms around my knees and said, Daddy, Take me home. The worst moment of my life. And I was instantly angry again. Spirit of God, I asked for a blessing and you give me this memory right now? Right now. And I was raging and angry. Of course, I was sitting still because I was in church. But the Lord and I were having a conversation. And it wasn't audible, but you know how you just know when God's speaking to you? And the Lord just said to me, Greg, I know what kind of father you are. I know how you love your children. I said, that's right, Lord. That's right. If I'd have known what they were going to do to that boy, I would have turned over tables. I would have kidnapped him. I would have broken the law. I would have run. I would have done anything, anything to protect my son, Lord. Anything. Spirit of God spoke to me and said, I know. My son wrapped his arms around my knees at Gethsemane. I said, Father, take me home. I said, no. And I tore his arms off my knees and pushed him away, knowing what they were going to do to him. Knowing 
the abuse he was going to take, knowing he was going to die. And I was overwhelmed. How could anybody do that? He said, I did it because I love you. I couldn't imagine a love so deep and so great. It changed me. It changed me. You know, I, when I was preparing this and I came upon the First John 4 scripture that says, God is love. I, I looked at the context and you can probably imagine leading up to this is spiritual warfare and discernment. Test the spirits. Aren't we going through some spiritual warfare here? But after that, the beginning of verse 12 says, no one has seen God. And I thought, well, that's kind of an odd statement to put in there. What, what's that mean? And I just started digging into that. You know, no one on this planet has seen Jesus. No one has seen him. W- word says he was the image of the invisible God when he was on this earth, the firstborn of all creation. Now, you and I are the image of the invisible God. It is through our love that people will see God the Father. There is a lot of people outside these walls that are watching this church and watching how we will react, watching how we will love. We are the Jesus that they need to see. We are the image of of the invisible God. I would challenge you, be that image this morning. He loves you. He loves you. You cannot love unless you spend time with Him and say, God, use me to love others. Some of you um, are, are angry at other people here. Some of you have had grudges for a long time. Um, I would just encourage you to think and pray about that when I tell you one last story. Satan always tries to steal our joy and our victory, and I was in the, in the bank um, one day down south, and a friend of mine was talking about how um, he, his kids were all getting ready to leave home, and they were going to go on one last cruise together, and uh, how joyous it was. Great Christian guy, and... I started rejoicing with him for a while, and then I thought, God, I I didn't get that. There was no joyous parting of the ways of our kids. We didn't get, get that, and I started feeling put upon and hurt. And um, I listened politely and kind of have a great time. And as we, as I walked back to my office, and I was still feeling that feeling of being rejected by God. The Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, Greg, would you trade the intimacy that we have together for a cruise? I said, no, God. No, Father. Nothing. Nothing I would trade for you. As uh, Dusty comes to, to lead us in prayer time, I just don't want you to leave here without pressing into the one who is love and seeing who he would have you love this week, uh, and perhaps uh, 
do some reconciliation. Thanks for listening. Thank you for sharing, Greg. And uh, the thing we need to know is God is love. And so as Greg and I kind of talked about how this would play out and what kind of things would be going through your minds right now, we just thought, let's have everybody spend time addressing the God who is love. And so that's what we want to ask you to do. Would you pray to the God who is love. Allow him to refresh you, renew you about how much he loves you. And then secondly, will you ask, like we did at the beginning of the service, God, what expression of love do you want from me right now? As I, as I end this service with all these people, maybe there's some, somebody in this room that needs to see an expression of love from me. As I go out these doors, maybe there's somebody in my life that needs the love that God has given me. Maybe they need to see that for the first time, maybe. And so what we want to do is end the service in just an open altar kind of prayer time. We're going to dim the lights. We're going to put some music on. And we want you to deal with your life in whatever way, shape, form that takes. Spend some time with the God who is love and then ask him, what expression of love do you need from me? The staff is going to be up front here and we're going to be armed with some scripture. Maybe you need to come to us and just say, I need some comfort, man. Uh, I need some prayer for me. We're going to be here for that. Okay? Let me pray. And then we will end the service that way. When you're comfortable... Just silently exit, but spend as much time as you need in this place together. Father, we thank you that you are love. That you gave everything for us. And we are so undeserving and we don't give hardly anything back. And yet you, you don't ask that. You just ask us for us. You want our hearts to be devoted to you. Father, help us with what that looks like today, in the next few minutes, in the next few hours, in the next few days. We love Jesus, and we want to honor him in everything that we do. Help us to do that right now. It's in Jesus' name I pray.